This is Radio Science, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission is to probe the critical debates in archaeology through conversations with leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. Cornell University is located on the traditional homelands of the Gayokono, or Cayuga Nation. The Gayokono are members of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, an alliance of six sovereign nations with a historic and contemporary presence on this land. The Confederacy precedes the establishment of Cornell University, New York State, and the United States of America. We acknowledge the painful history of Gayokono dispossession and honor the ongoing connection of Gayokono people, past and present, to these lands and waters. On November 2, 2023, Dr. Jacob Dam from the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies met with a panel of Siam students and faculty to discuss his research on foodways and material identities, focusing on case studies in the Southern Levant. The discussion is about to begin. Stay tuned to Radio Siams. Hello and welcome to Radio Siams from Cornell University and from the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. My name is Sturt Manning. I'm a professor of archaeology. I'm in the Classics Department, a member of Siams, and I work particularly in the Aegean East Mediterranean. Today's topic is discussion around some readings that we have been doing on foodways and material identity, and particularly focused on case studies in the Southern Levant. And our special guest is the current Hirsch Postdoctoral Fellow here at Cornell University in Siams, Jacob Daum, who joins us from UCLA previously and is now enjoying the uh, cold weather here in Ithaca, our first snow yesterday. And I'm going to ask the first question to start the discussion off. So Jacob, when you were talking about materials and identity, how much do the differences and graduations of the persons involved in any household come into play? Because most of the literature tends to treat the actual people as fairly much the same. There's sort of somewhat a sort of somatic identity. So you have the household, you have the space, you've tried to break it down to smaller entities and units, and you consider the cross-cutting sort of, you know, issues around that. But we don't talk about ages, gender, parental kin relationships. So the people are sort of often left out and become a uniform person in these discussions. Whereas it seems to be there's a rich and dynamic set of self-aware identities uh, and in, within the habitus type context and question you're talking about. And particularly, I was thinking about the paper that you focused on, Bashan. How might you see the individual starting to play into creations of place, food, ways, and identities? It's a really good question. It's um, one of the things that happens a lot when we start thinking of the various overlay of identities or even individuals within a household is... Sometimes we have a tendency to overinterpret evidence uh, on the basis of preconceived notions we have about how social conditions might have existed in the past. Uh, one thing I hinted at, and I actually think both of the papers I had you look at, was, for instance, with respect to cooking pots. In the past, the idea is that um, cooking pots automatically signal a, a female domain of labor. While not unreasonable, there are other factors that could be at play as to why a, a given cooking pot, an Egyptian-type cooking pot or a Levantine-type cooking pot, might show up in a house. And so I would say, in many ways, one of the things we have to do is really avoid that first knee-jerk assumption to project onto the household what we can see um, you know, from our own times onto the, the material record. And the other side to that is it's always a question of data control. Um, in an ideal world, we would have the types of data available to us to talk about these very narrow domains of individual activities within the household. But in many ways, especially with some of the published data that I've worked with in the past, and even the leftover materials from old excavations that I've gone back to reanalyze, really at best what you're looking at is sort of an averaging of activities across a much larger spatial unit in the site rather than the types of sort of narrow collections that you would really love to be able to parse out these very subtle aspects of identity. So long story short, and in many ways, I would say, in certain contexts, it really is possible to start breaking down those 
overlapping and multivalent aspects of individual identities within different spaces in the house for different individuals in the house. But at its heart, that is really very much a, a, a factor of data control, sometimes that we don't have access to. And in which case you simply have to be open to several possible interpretations of the social significance of something. And with the understanding that, you know, each thing might be equally valid in any given situation. Because just to follow up, you have the sort of traditional views typically where whether it might be by status or by gender or by some other sort of class classification, you see certain fashions or developments flow down or across some form of gradient. And often that seems a very nice, elegant way and simple way to sort of describe something. But invariably, you know, whether from your own personal life or any ethnographic case you choose, that's the one thing that never actually happens. These things are happening in a plural way and you're having quite active dynamics, which are often cross-cutting, whether it be based on gender, on age, on which part of the town, village or settlement you're in. And moreover, it's been one of those you know, fairly much standard human things. Younger people have to question older people. That's part of growing up. Even if you end up being the older person in due time, you're going to be seeing all of these things happening, which are going to make it very difficult to ever label that you um, can recognize to, in the case you've got. Do you have Egyptianizing presence? Do you have Egyptians? Do you, well, you seem to basically have a lot of people, some of whom are using that foreign inverted commas, um, type of assemblage or food. They may be doing that to belong, to rebel all at the same time. Exactly. And um, I actually think probably one of the most useful concepts here is uh, something Barbara Voss has used to, to great effect in looking in, in the San Francisco region and archaeology of immigrant populations there is overdetermination. Uh, you know, you look at something like identity and it is often a factor of so many different variables, social inputs, material inputs, that it's incredibly complicated to talk about it in such a simple one-to-one -one way. And that's actually why in, in most of my work I've avoided trying to say, you know, ethnicity so-and-so lived in this house. I don't really think that's possible or even particularly productive. I think focusing on individual practices, what individuals are doing in their day-to-day -day life, as they try to create these aspects of identity, be it consciously, subconsciously, whatever, um, or even doing things that are utterly unrelated to their identities, because I think in a way we can all see how that pans out, that... <sighs> Mostly what we're tracking is the frequency of certain kinds of actions. And occasionally we might be able to contextualize those so well that maybe we can offer reasonable interpretations about an act of identity expression or even what identity might have been at the forefront of identity negotiation. But we have to resign ourselves to the fact that that is really only possible in a few cases. And we can often only take these things so far. Um, hello, my name is Rebecca Gerties. I'm a PhD candidate in classical archaeology. I study foodways and ceramic-based practices using organic residue analysis in late Bronze Age Cyprus and the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, I think I'm going to take a step back a little bit from the big picture questions that you've been discussing so far and just get into the nitty-gritty of your method. Um, and in particular, for the listeners who may not have actually read these papers, um, <laughs> Can you clarify, so you mentioned a previous method of quantifying Egyptian versus Levantine pottery at these two garrison sites that you mentioned in, in, um, in the articles that we read, um, and you mentioned a previous approach of handling um, the differences in the pottery types, and you refer to this as the 1, one slash 100 or 1 over 100 method. Um, can you clarify that method and how your approach differs? Um, and also in the question, can you, given the discussion you've just had about identity and identification, can you clarify how you're using the terms Egyptian and Levantine with respect to pottery? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's a great question. Unfortunately, uh, the, the sort of ceramics counting methods, uh, you only make recourse to an incredibly boring body of literature, which is how do you count pots archaeologically? And this is something that we've been fighting about for well over almost a century now, in some cases, uh, you know, I've had colleagues say, well, you know, one fragment of a pot equals one, right? Uh, others have come up with methods uh, as complex as sort of weighing pots with an index of, you know, how much ounce of broken ceramic equals one amphora. Uh, and the method that I use actually is, is, is almost identical to the one of 100 method. It's um, a certain type of method for counting in 
effectively you treat every fragment of a pot um, as a proportion of a whole. So let's say you have uh, one quarter of a bull rim. If you know the type of that bull, then you effectively count that as 0.25 bulls. Um, and then once you start adding these things up across an assemblage, you can get at sort of a basic minimum number of vessels that might have been present. Um, in no way, shape or form is there this understanding that you have accurately quantified every pot that was ever at the site. This is, it's very important to realize that these modes of counting, they're always, uh, they're always very much hypotheticals. They're very much to help you discuss an assemblage that in and of itself is, is broken into so many pieces. It's, it's to give you a layer of something at least slightly more concrete. Um, and quite a few different people have used this uh, method to, to good effect. The reason why I opted for it uh, myself is, is because um, it's probably the most easy one to get people to understand where your numbers come from. Um, it's probably the most replicable by other people if they wanted to revisit your data. And in this case, actually, the, the previous scholar who worked on it, um, uh, this is specifically Beth Sean, Mario Martin used effectively the same method. And it's one of the reasons why my work at the site of Jaffa can so easily be compared to his work at the site of Beth Sean. And this, this is something that a lot of people don't understand about something as simple as counting, is you can count things in a way that it's utterly impossible to compare it to how someone else chose to count something at a different site. And so everyone will just be talking past each other, sort of a ship's passing in the night moment with something as basic as what equals one in your numbers. I think I got it, your question, yeah? Yeah, the, the other half was the Egyptian and Levantine. Yeah, so this is, this is in and of itself a, a very interesting thing, and it has a lot to do with um, very basic aspects of how the vessels are made. The number one thing is all of these vessels that I'm talking about, unless I specifically say that something is imported from Egypt, um, we are talking about vessels that were made locally at the garrisons in the southern Levant, both the Egyptian type and the Levantine type vessels. At the most basic level, the Levantine type vessels, these are vessels that are very much in keeping with a local ceramics tradition that goes back um, quite far, just a continuous chain of development, really from the early Bronze Age, but especially the Middle Bronze Age into our period, which is the Late Bronze Age and the Early Iron Age. So this is a relatively continuous chain of shapes, manufacturing techniques, um, decisions about what additives to put into the clay that's, that's been relatively stable. There, there have been changes over time, but there's a very continuous chain locally of these types of vessels being made. Um, in contrast, the things that I refer to as Egyptian, again, they're being made from local clays. They're being made locally at the sites in the Southern Levant. But what they actually represent is a completely foreign way of manufacturing the vessels. Everything from how the vessel's thrown on the wheel, uh, to the different treatment methods that individuals might use, including things like um, flipping a vase upside down on the wheel and roughly scraping off the outside, uh, adding certain things to the clay, like organic uh, temper, like chopped straw. That's actually, we call it chopped straw. It's probably from dung. Um, no one's out there like snipping the straw with scissors. But um, at the end of the day, what we see is an entire chain of manufacture, an entire technology, an entire sequence of decisions that are completely and utterly foreign to the Southern Levant, but perfectly parallel. And, and I do mean perfectly parallel, uh, the mode of manufacture of vessels from Egypt. And also all these forms share the, the shape, the morphology with vessels from Egypt. And it's, it's striking how perfect it is. It's, it's to the level of, um, both the Egyptian type ceramics industry and the Levantine ceramics industry at these given sites made a couple of forms that were for all intents and purposes, identical. They look exactly the same, but the manufacturing techniques are different. So it's, it makes it quite, um, I don't want to say easy necessarily, but it, it makes it quite uh, straightforward to distinguish between the two traditions locally. Uh, even macroscopically, just breaking and looking at the fabric, you can actually tell the difference quite readily. Uh, and I, I, the one sort of last point I'll make on this, because this is something I've, I've caught flack for in the past, is uh, people want you to use the term imitation. 
Um, but the thing is, is the vessels that are being produced in the Southern Levant that look like Egyptian vessels, they're, they're not imitations. They are the exact same thing, just made with a different clay source locally. And I think that's a really important thing for people to understand. That's a key distinction on vocabulary there. Uh, hi, I'm Liam MacDonald. I'm a PhD candidate here at Cornell working on deterrentology. Um, I kind of have a follow-up question to Rebecca's and what you were talking about in terms of comparability between different sites in different parts of the same region. Um, I mean, first of all, I was wanting to hear your thoughts on how more kind of more sophisticated statistical methods might play into that in terms of hypothesis testing or various forms of modeling that people could or have applied. Mm. And then secondly, this is more a chronological question because you were talking earlier about spatial averaging, but you can also think of archaeological records as chronologically averaged as well. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the two sites that you were looking at, how good is the chronological control? Um, what is kind of the duration that each individual stratum represents and how um, how does that hinder or help us in terms of comparison? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so I'll start with your first one about sort of comparison across sites and, and whether or not that can be resolved through more advanced modeling or something like that. The unfortunate simple answer is not really. <laughs> a lot of people are very uh, keen on trying to throw advanced statistical methods at sort of large unwieldy data sets and seeing what sticks. A big thing that I've been a proponent of in my work um, is I, I tend to actually try to keep most of my work confined to exploratory data analysis, really very straightforward, non-modeling type things like data representation, pattern searching, using you know graphs of I don't want to say the data as it is, because I'm still in doing the method that I described with Rebecca of treating each shirt as a fragment of a whole vessel and still transforming the data somehow to analyze it. But the thing is, is at a certain level, the data often isn't comparable between sites. Uh, I don't have the same way of quantifying as someone else did somewhere else. There, there are a couple of sites uh, in the region that have extraordinary data sets that are, that are published. Um, but they were published by the conventions of a certain time, for instance, and therefore there are things unsaid that make you wonder, is what I'm looking at in this publication everything? Uh, can I actually quantify what was at the site, what they found on the basis of just the drawings in uh, a report without any sort of additional published numbers? And so that's something that really stymies um, sort of doing multi-site modeling. Uh, I would say that um, there are a few sites where it probably would be possible to do something a bit more robust. Um, and actually, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping one day to collaborate with the author that published the material from Bet Sean, because since he and I use such similar quantification methods, I think we would be able to subject all of our data to the exact, I mean, we would have recorded all the same variables. And so it would be possible to use much more robust uh, techniques. But for the time being, especially as some of these things are the first time this data has been published in this way, you kind of try and set a sort of paradigm that other people might hopefully follow in the future to build more comparable data sets across the region. Um, at its heart, it's usually going to take something like a graduate student in a dissertation uh, sitting down and recording all the relevant variables for something like that to happen. But um, in an ideal world, we would start having more standardized conventions of, of not only recording data, but also publishing it and making it available after we publish our sites so that these types of things could be done a bit more easily. Um, and regarding your second question about chronological control, this is a really interesting one uh, because in my work, especially at the site of Jaffa, which almost all of this was unpublished material that I had to work from the ground up, and this is material dating from excavations from the 1950s to the 1970s by Jacob Kaplan, an Israeli municipal archaeologist working in the region, as well as our own work there beginning right around 2011. Um, so the nice thing about your own work is when you're in charge of gathering data from the ground up, you can be more or less certain uh, where things are coming from uh, and how much was collected, what was discarded, you know, that sort of thing. 
The good news about Jacob Kaplan's work is actually he was meticulous. Um, by the time I arrived at the uh, storehouses where all of his material was stored, I was looking at shoe boxes filled with pottery fragments the size of your pinky nail because they were using a sifting screen and just putting everything that they found in a box. The vast majority of it is impossible to use for anything sort of real, but it meant that they were saving everything. And so I have a lot more confidence um, in that material than a lot of other people really can sometimes when dealing with these older excavations. And I also, it took us quite some time. It's kind of an interesting story. We only gradually acquired his archive. Uh, so we were actually a few years into working the site when we were contacted by a friend of a family member of his who found a lot of his daily plans in an attic. Uh, so once we had those, we digitized them all. And I went from just having the briefest description of where a pottery bucket came from to a spatial plan with all the elevations and everything. It was, again, something that a lot of people aren't fortunate enough to get when dealing with old excavations. So in many ways at the site, we do have very good chronological control because a couple of the levels that we're talking about um, were destroyed rather violently. Um, and so you have this material, um, I can use the gate, for instance, as an example. There's a, a monumental gate at Jaffa dating from really the reasonably 13th century up until about the very, I would say, the last quarter of the 12th century BC. And it's destroyed at least twice, but potentially as many as three times over the course of probably a little more than a decade or, or 20 years. It's, it's, it's quite rapid fire. And the interesting thing about it is every time they rebuilt it, they actually didn't really cut down into the older material. And so you do have these incredibly consistent sealed layers where you have a floor and then everything that burned and collapsed on top of it, and then a leveling, and then a new floor. It's, it's kind of a dream, stratigraphically. It's, it's not really something that happens all that often. Um, and for the most part, with most of the context that I do any real robust analyses of, we were fortunate enough to have that type of control. There are some where we don't. Um, and I'm actually often much more hesitant to include that material in my analyses. I'll, you know, if you read what I've written. Uh, there's lots of footnotes and caveats everywhere saying, you know, I left this out because of this reason. I left that out because of that reason. And that's because everything sort of gets churned up and homogenized in a few spaces on the site. And you don't have that control. Um, so the other side is that it's not just that we have these very clean separated levels giving us a little bit of vertical control. Uh, we have a really good radiocarbon chronology for these levels as well. So we were able to collect charred seeds from each level, in some cases, in huge quantities. So you can run quite a few dates from these seeds to gain a sense that what I'm seeing is consistent across all of them. Um, and with that, we've actually been able to do a great deal of work and actually have some forthcoming results of work with um, Sturt and uh, Britta Lawrenson here at the Cornell Dendro Lab on uh, some of the wood samples from the gate complex as well, which will help us even further refine that chronology. So while traditionally, you know, we, we often get forced to focus on less chronologically per, like, precise things to control our analyses, we're actually lucky enough to have really good dates uh, to correspond with, with our layers. Hi, I'm Jamie Ellis. I'm a first year master's student in archaeology with SIAMS. Um, I'm also interested in exploring identities in ancient societies and how they were constructed. So thank you for this opportunity to work with you and your, uh, your work. Uh, so in your forthcoming article, Pottery as Practice, you used a multi-tiered practice-based approach um, that I found to be a really interesting way to engage with the data. Could you elaborate more on this approach and why you um, chose to use this as your theoretical framework? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the interesting thing about that saying the interesting thing about my own approach sounds a bit, uh, you know, self-congratulatory. Uh, the reason why I picked that approach is I spent a very long time looking at the data from the ground up, um, you know, going shirt by shirt, measuring every single shirt. I, sp I spent probably two 
two to three years really in a storage room uh, working on material. Um, and as archaeologists, we have a tendency to assume that we probably, we almost have a backlash that we assume too many things are top down from the past. We like to, th you know, we, what is often referred to sort of half jokingly as the great man approach to history or something like that. Everyone's always envisioning some situation where some king somewhere decreed something and therefore there was a, a trickle down. Um, and so we always push back against that. We're actually much more interested often in bottom up changes that happen at, at either an individual or a family level or just these smaller social units. However, I started noticing a lot of very weird things in the data that meant that while we have to pay very, very close attention to this bottom up thing, how people are using and consuming these vessel types, there were still some very bizarre things that didn't make a whole lot of sense if that was the only variable that helped explain what we were seeing. And while I've always been very interested in a communities of, I talk about in the article what we call communities of practice approach, I became very interested in the, the group making the pots. Um, and so that was, that was something that drew me more towards the technological decisions and all of the overlapping uh, systems of, of, you know, apprenticeship, face-to-face uh, -face learning, materials people needed that had to come together to even produce the pots locally. And so that led me to focus on sort of that second tier, the individuals making the pots. But even then, one of the problems that we've always run into studying Egyptian pottery as it shows up in the Southern Levant during the Late Bronze Age at all these garrison sites is it's a really small fraction of what we see in Egypt. They're the same vessel types, but the diversity that exists in Egypt, it, 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 there's an extraordinary diversity of pottery in Egypt during this period, is just miles beyond what we see showing up at this garrisons. And so I started trying to think of ways to interpret why we would see such a truncated array of forms uh, at these garrison sites. They're, they're, Individuals are going through the trouble, and there's a lot of trouble to be gone through to make these pots locally. There's plenty of local alternatives that would work just fine. So the question is, is why did they choose to make some things versus others? And all of the very easy sort of common sense type explanations didn't really work. The idea that, you know, oh, there wasn't something local to do this exact thing, so they had to make their own. That's not how it panned out. In fact, they often make the same exact forms. And really what I started coming down to is that we do have to engage with this, this last tier, this sort of top-down element. And the inspiration for that was actually looking at a lot of communities in Egypt that were provisioned uh, by the crown. And Egypt is somewhat peculiar in that we actually have access to a lot of texts related to these communities that talk about how, um, I'd say, for example, the community of artisans living at Dar al-Medina in Egypt, these are the individuals responsible for building the royal tombs in the Valley of the Kings. We have dozens of records and receipts and any other sort of odds and ends, sort of very mundane paperwork related to what they were given on a day-to-day -day basis as a community supported by the crown. And because of this sort of peculiar abundance of resources for Egypt, it, it starts to become possible to look at these more daily life type industries in a different way, specifically as they manifest in, in an odd community. One of the things we frequently talk about in Egypt is that it's very hard to do a domestic archaeology of Egypt because it's so rare that we can, we've actually looked at houses outside of these very strange royal cities or royal villages. Um, so for instance, one of the largest cities we've excavated from the New Kingdom is Amarna. But Amarna is this very peculiar city that the pharaoh of Akhenaten largely populated with artisans doing things that he was supporting. So more often than not, we don't have, I guess, what you could conceive of as a normal household. We have households that are very deeply entangled with the Egyptian state. And while this makes talking about domestic archaeology in, in Egypt quite difficult, it actually works out really nicely for me looking at garrison communities in the southern Levant because I am looking at these communities that were 
in some way entangled with this sort of top-down force driving the New Kingdom Empire in the Levantine region. And it's certainly possible that other factors could explain what I'm talking about, but based on what I see at these types of sites in Egypt, populated by individuals provisioned by the crown, it's remarkably similar. And working just on the basis of that analogy, I think that allows us to see a couple of different forces. Um, so to answer your question, I sort of went backwards from the data and uh, I, I kept cycling back to all the things that didn't make sense in the assemblage on the basis of if we just use this traditional assumption that we use all the time in archaeology about, you know, who structures the assemblage, why, where is it coming from? And I will never, ever claim to have exhausted the possibilities, but based on what comes out of Egypt, it seems the most, most plausible. And, and so I sort of developed my model backwards, if that makes sense. Okay, let me um, follow up on one thing you said earlier, which I thought was um, interesting and that now I'm sort of um, challenged you on. You made the observation that effectively, we're using different clays in a sense, some methods, the aim of the potters was to make functionally and aesthetically identical vessels. And this is not an uncommon situation. Even close by, one thinks in the Aegean, Minoans make late Minoan 1B type pottery. Mainland people start making this LH2A, which looks, for all intensive purposes, exactly the same. And it's often very difficult to tell apart unless you start doing clay and other analysis. And you can think of countless other examples in much later periods, Raymond otherwise. So it raises the question, what did the consumers, which after all the people when anyone's looking at this material as evidence of food, ways and practice, did the consumers know the difference? And how did they know the difference? And was it important to them? That is a very, very good question. Um, I would say that right now our strongest evidence towards whether or not the consumers saw these things as being vastly different. Uh, the best evidence we have relates to sort of house-by-house house distributions of these artifacts. And, and the interesting thing there is there is no such thing as a house that purely utilized one or the other tradition. Um, and in fact, actually, when we look at individual houses, individual you know, bounded contexts, even if they aren't houses all around the area, they're perfectly content to use, for instance, um, the Egyptian type of the simple bowl just alongside the Levantine type of the simple bowl. They're fully intermixed with each other. So I would say we haven't actually found a situation where there is any indication that um, they were regarded that differently. Um, there are certain other forms, however, um, where there do seem to be major distinctions. Um, and in this case, uh, for instance, uh, quite a few people have made maybe a bit more out of this than I would be comfortable to, but... Um, there does seem to be a major distinction made with um, certain of uh, the large jars, the, the large storage jars. They're actually very Egyptian type big storage jars are, are very bulky. They're, they don't have really useful bases. You, they're, they're quite awkward unto themselves. And very few people bother to use them. Some people seem to actively seek them out and they tend to be in higher densities in certain houses than houses where they're absent. But um, again, actually overall, you're never going to find a house with all of the one kind. So to me, that raises the shopping question, which mm -hmm. of course is how do people acquire these items? So if you think about the modern, of course, there are lots and lots of different types of tomato sauce, and it often comes down to just our family always get this one, or it's mm -hmm. the one that's got the pretty colored label and people grab it. But they're, they're actually buying the, uh, the entity, not the container. Others, mm -hmm. particularly, and it's nice you brought the large ones up, you start buying something very big, it often comes down to what type of method of transport do you have to take it home? Is it plausible? Which ones fit? And so on. You're making a more of a choice on functional grounds. Again, often not actually determined on the content or the shape. You might want the entity, but it's often chosen for other reasons. So it makes you wonder when we're looking at these distributions and we're trying to identify personal associations or not, it's whether other types of market-associated factors are as, as determinant, and it just adds yet another factor into what was already a complicated set of choices that represent what we find on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd agree with that fully. And in fact, um, I think probably one of the more interesting testimonies of these sort of layers of possible choices and decisions 
when you look at the data, one of the things that's fascinating is over time, leading up to the very, very end of the Egyptian uh, garrison system in the region, Egyptian pottery is actually becoming more and more common at every site where it's present uh, to the point to where um, in some cases, uh, just bowls at Betshan and actually at Jaffa, this happens in both places. Uh, if you look at bowls, more than 90% of them are the Egyptian type compared to the local type. But while that sort of, you know, may at first brush seem like, okay, Egyptian forms are becoming more common, this must be deeply significant. Other types of Egyptian forms are vanishing. Um, and other types of Levantine form that actually used to be very uncommon in relation to their Egyptian counterpart are actually becoming much, much more common. And in the category where I think this is most interesting are those vessels that actually roughly did the same thing, but had to be used very differently to do that thing. And that's in talking about sort of the materiality of the vessels themselves. Uh, they, they had to be used in a certain way, just based on the way that they were shaped, structured. And I would say sometimes it, it would be more productive to look at those things that had to have some sort of difference in use than necessarily to focus our attention on the numbers of things that were in many ways seemingly identical and it, for all intents and purposes from the from the household distributions that we see of them were perceived of as being largely identical. And, and I do think, you know, what was cheapest, what was most available, any of these types of factors do have to be considered as a possibility. At the end of the day, I don't think things like the simple bowl really played much of a role in identity expression. I, I think they did actually sort of elide into the background on the basis of any number of other decisions as to why you would or would not acquire it. Just a quick follow-up, you mentioned the San Francisco case, but what you're talking about, you think about garrison towns, you think about uh, Imperial Rome, you think of Roman Britain case, you think about Chinese and Chinese cases, you think about British Empire and cases, and given we're in the US, you think of as professor of the US government spread across North America and claim places. Are there processes and patterns that you have or you think you could recognize in which when you're looking at these type of imperial models, you keep seeing certain tendencies in terms of distribution, trade, acquisition, assimilation, which may allow a better way of interpreting a remote prehistoric past where we don't have that rich ethnographic information? That's a great question. I struggle because, you know, for the long, actually very early on in, um, in the history of the question for looking at specifically the Egyptian New Kingdom and the Southern Levant, a lot of people used uh, the Roman Britain as an analogy by which to try and better understand the question. But one of the very peculiar things, especially when you compare the situation in Roman Britain with Egypt, is Roman Britain, um, there were actually very lasting impacts on foodways related to how, especially after the Roman withdrawal from Britain, the way the aristocracy acted and the way they conducted their foodways locally. But the situation is completely different in the Southern Levant. After the Egyptian Empire ends, everything vanishes. Uh, all modes of, of food production, vessel production, anything that might give the slightest hint of uh, sort of a local manifestation of, of foodways that has its origin in Egypt vanishes all at once. Um, and I would say that there are occasional colonial situations um, that have offered something of a, of a bellwether. There's actually very interesting cases from um, South Africa uh, during a sort of European expansion of the region, especially in this uh, really moving into the, I want to say the 18th century, where um, individuals were requisitioning potters to feed uh, from the homeland to feed locals because the aristocrats were mortified by the sort of group eating settings that their, their sort of junior ranking individuals were participating in and how it was sort of an amalgamation of foodways, modes of eating from all over the British Empire. Um, and so individuals were actually going out of their way to create the situation where an individuals could eat with familiar table services to sort of maintain some sort of sense of propriety. That's actually would be a very bizarre instance of top down. Um, and I've actually looked closely at uh, modern militaries as well and the way they handle foods um, in bases overseas, bases in combat zones. And, I mean, you can see quite a few striking parallels. I think one of the more surreal images is looking at uh, U.S. military bases in combat zones with miniature fast food restaurants uh, placed alongside each other. Um, 
I don't know if I think there's anything that offers a really a, a, a perfect parallel, but like with anything, when we look at these ethnographic examples or other regions, they certainly do a lot more to flesh out the possibilities of interpretation. And I think that's where the greatest use comes in. Um, because as, as you say, we don't have the types of sources that give us these individual perceptions of, you know, what the situation in the garrison was like. Actually, the little that we do have um, comes from sort of very bizarre circles. So we have Egyptian scribal texts where the scribes are showing off their knowledge of the empire. And really, the only thing they say is that being a soldier is awful because the food's terrible. Uh, so, you know, you really want to be a scribe, not a soldier. And so you can hardly take that at face value. Um, so, yeah, I think looking at these other examples from archaeologies around the world, from ethnography around the world, they open us up to the range of possibilities of interpretation because humans are immensely complicated in these types of situations. Our motivations are complicated. And so it's better to have a rich understanding of possibilities rather than assuming you've, you've honed in on the one. Hi, this is uh, Liam again. So kind of following up on this idea of different possibilities of how um, people would have experienced their day-to-day -day lives, I was particularly interested in your idea of itinerant workers being um, uh, the, the mechanism by which this Egyptian-style pottery or Egyptian pottery um, was present in the Levant. So I was wondering if you could just say more about what we know about the possibilities of itinerant work, what kind of timescales for mobility we should be thinking on, and if there's other examples or um, lines of evidence from the period textual or um, epigraphic or things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is actually something a, it hasn't really been worked on much in pottery uh, in the region. It, it sort of shows up every once in a while when people think about uh, potters. Uh, Stuart was talking about some of the late Hellatic series of potteries and it, it has shown up there a bit. The vast majority of the work that's on sort of itinerant laborers, especially in this region, is really based on a few relatively narrow types of trade. And I, I, I think I, I'm probably going to leave a few out, but uh, things like uh, in the sort of late Middle Bronze Age into the early Late Bronze Age, there's this idea that there might have been itinerant specialists helping uh, create these large uh, frescoes in palaces that were, that were quite in vogue at the time. Um, I've had some colleagues uh, who've worked on metallurgy, uh, glyptic, um, so that's, uh, you know, carving seals and things like that. Um, and we do occasionally get textual resources uh, that, you know, primary sources that attest to craft specialists moving around. Um, and actually, sometimes they're very interesting. Uh, we have some correspondences between royal individuals complaining that someone's been held up for too long. So you kind of see individuals passing between courts. Now, I, I would say that this is a very different kind of production. This is sort of very um, elite-oriented, uh, conspicuous consumption type uh, craft that really you're, you're trying to show your prestige to your, to your fellow, uh, fellow elites. Um, on the sort of smaller scale, um, I don't want to say mundane because some of these things are still quite uh, involved tasks. And I mean, I, I can't throw a pot, so I'm never going to say that that you know, doesn't require much skill. Um, we actually have quite a few texts out of Egypt, especially about uh, foreign craft workers doing things like building ships. Um, though I would say their itinerant character is a little less clear. Sometimes they actually do seem to have just simply been migrant and, and actually have, have stayed where they are. Um, so there's not as much textual evidence from this period for something like a, a potter moving around. This, this idea that I had is, is more of a reconstruction based on a few key points. Uh, the first point is that when, when Egyptian pottery first shows up in the region, it shows up immediately completely realized. Everything's there. Um, you uh, take a site like Jaffa, for instance, one of the earliest contexts in which we see Egyptian pottery at the site. We have a pretty good date for it. It's, it's, it's sort of late 15th century BCE. Um, we can't really bracket the front end of that, unfortunately. Um, and already, just immediately with this first context, we're seeing a very, very complicated 
group of vessels being produced, a wide variety of types of very, very different shapes and sizes manufactured with different techniques that are um, designed to do lots of different types of tasks. And so right then and there, the fact that this appears fully realized out of nowhere suggests that the input had to come from outside. Um, When we talk about local populations imitating foreign vessel types that they've come into contact with, that's not really how it works. There's this gradual phase of adoption, experimentation. And so that there suggests someone came from outside. Now, the easiest thing to, to counter that idea that, you know, itinerant specialists are responsible for the phenomenon the rest of the time, I and mean, we're talking about 350 years, uh, is that, well, couldn't they have just trained locals to do it eventually? And why, why would there need to be itinerant populations? Uh, coming in and out of the garrisons continuously to make pots. Um, and the simple reality with that is there's a few things that I think suggest that that's not the case. Um, the first is that the traditions for making Egyptian Levantine pots stay separate for more than three centuries. And when I say they stay separate, I don't just mean that they, they, they make different things. Um, nothing ever hybridizes, really. There's no hybrid Egypto-Levantine vessel that shows up. So there's no real intermixing there. But that in and of itself, again, is not very profound. But other clues suggest that these two industries stay fully separated. I think probably the most important one is that the vessels are fired at completely different temperatures. Um, And this is abundantly clear from uh, the combustion of carbon within the the vessel walls. And that's the most resource-intensive stage of making pottery when you fire your wares. If we look ethnographically to communities that have multiple potters working, they often do fire their wares together because this is a a big resource-intensive undertaking depending on your firing style. Um, So, okay, so we have, it shows up out of nowhere, uh, fully realized. It stays separate for more than three centuries. And then the other side uh, that I think points towards this itinerant aspect is that Everything, as far as we've anchored the chronology of these vessels, anytime we see changes in the types of uh, styles people are using, the types of decoration they're putting on the vessels, the types of um, even functional classes of vessels, they change at the garrisons pretty much exactly when they change in the Egyptian homeland. Now, again, that doesn't necessarily mean there has to be itinerant specialists coming in from Egypt, going to the garrisons, going back. But at the very least, and this is if we're being as cautious as possible with the data, there is a very good communication network connecting the potters at the garrisons in the Southern Levant with whatever is normal, uh, whatever sort of are the trends back in the Egyptian home. And to me, all these things together, I think, suggest that the simplest possible explanation is the cycling of potters. Um, uh, you know, it's not a hill I'm willing to die on if someone comes up with better counter evidence, but I think it's a very realistic possibility that, um, again, once you combine it with the evidence of how often the Egyptians provisioned communities working uh, on behalf of the crown, I think those pieces nest together nicely. But yeah, as, as I said, with other crafts, there is, there is absolute, um, you know, there, there are parallels for itinerant specialists. It's just usually the wrong class of craft. This is Rebecca again. Uh, Sturt kind of hinted at this a little bit when he was talking about, do you just buy the pot or do you buy what's in the pot? But I'm going to go for my pet project, which is uh, organic residue analysis. And uh, for the listeners, Jacob's laughing because we talk about this quite frequently. <laughs> um, from the articles that we read, um, in particular, your, your 2022 chapter, you bring in botanical evidence, final evidence, ceramic evidence, to kind of build up this picture of um, foodways at uh, Betchan. This is more of a speculative question. If you were to incorporate residue analysis into the analysis of these sites, how would it be most useful, usefully deployed to kind of further the questions that you're asking um, in terms of identity or identification, I should say? Yeah, no, this is a great question. And it actually does tie in exactly with what Sturt asked earlier. Uh, in an ideal world, right, we'd be able to differentiate the use patterns in all of these vessels. Now, I've, I've tried to do this to a certain extent uh, using non-chemical methods like useware analysis, but that 
there wasn't really enough data to say anything substantive. Um, with something like residue analysis, which I've also worked on quite a bit, uh, I have actually tried to use residue analysis to resolve this issue, but um, the samples, for instance, from Jaffa, which was the crux of this study, were non-ideal for a number of reasons. Um, so residue analysis operates on the assumption that we can you know, recover organic material from the vessel and reconstruct where it came from. Uh, for the vast majority of the vessels that were available to me, they were in storage uh, without climate control for somewhere between 50 to 70 years. Um, this was a situation where we decided knowing that to try anyways, albeit with an extreme degree of caution about interpreting the results because the possibility of contamination is, is infinite. Um, especially since they were stored, you know, in, in shoe boxes and people were rifling through the boxes for the sake of study for, you know, again, 50 to 70 years. Uh, and there were also a lot of dead animals in the storeroom. So, you know, lots of very interesting possibilities for contamination. Um, and that leaves us largely with uh, the vessels we excavated ourselves, which we did use protocols for to collect from the field to, to try and sample under as ideal conditions as possible. The downside with those materials is that um, I would say roughly 75% of them came from a context that had burned so intensely that the bricks melted. Um, and actually, uh, the mud plaster on the wall began to vitrify. Um, and as you well know, that is catastrophically destructive for organic residue. Um, Something still had some recoverable material. One of the things we noticed was that in the gate complex, especially where the vast majority of these vessels came from, certain areas collapsed and actually shielded things from the heat better than other areas. So in some places, wood didn't burn away completely. Seeds didn't burn away completely. They just carbonized. Um, so it indicates in, in some level that it was protected from the oxidizing zone of the fire. Um, and so there have been some minor successes from that. Uh, one sort of brief example is at Jaffa, we have something that's, that's commonly referred to as an Egyptian meat jar. Um, this name comes from inscriptions on them, uh, not really any. And we don't actually know if all of them were used to contain meat. Uh, just someone working the better part of a century ago saw that some were labeled with meat and the name stuck. Um, but Jaffa has... A minimum of two of these, possibly as many as three, and it's the only site in the Southern Levant that's ever produced them. They're, they're imported from Egypt. These are very chronologically late. And in analyzing the three of them, or excuse me, two of them for certain, I almost, I can't say if there's a third. It was far too shattered. Um, in analyzing two of them, uh, one of them produced, uh, markers for animal fats. Um, but also markers for uh, coniferous resins. And again, it burned at a very high temperature. It was exposed to a lot of things in the burning environment. But, you know, taking that with a grain of salt, uh, Salima Ikram has done some pretty amazing work on meat preservation in Egypt. And those two things aren't, you know, the use of resins is actually not out of keeping with... Um, meat preservation practices in Egypt that we know of from the New Kingdom. That's not very satisfactory in the grand scheme of, of determining use patterns. Um, if I were to talk in terms of an ideal, uh, this is, I know, something you and I have talked about quite a bit, but it all boils down actually to something that we were talking about earlier with respect to even just counting sherds is a lot more sites need to be working under the same sort of protocols of how to collect samples, how to analyze them, what to look for. And it can even be one person doing this across a couple of sites. You know, one, uh, I almost said itinerant specialist, but you know, <laughs> uh, one person who actually is doing these types of analysis. But right now, uh, the, the situation in the field is, it's a mixed bag. Uh, there isn't a lot of comparative material. A lot of the people who are working across the region are using very different methods um, to the point to where it actually is quite difficult to compare. Um, 
I would say that if, you know, thinking in terms of sort of a success story, what someone was able to demonstrate something very, very useful, um, Philip Stockhammer was a German scholar uh, working on um, chalices. And, and so this is a, a local sort of stemmed uh, chalice uh, versus the Mycenaean Kylix, which looks very, very similar, but in sort of, sort of a much fancier way. And they show uh, both show up at Levantine sites. And the underlying assumption was that the Mycenaean Kylix was always being used like it was in Greece, which was as a drinking vessel. However, he was able to demonstrate through useware analysis that actually they were just using them the same way as they used the local chalice, which is more like an incense burner. Uh, and so that's, a, that's an example of a success story where someone actually did the narrow types of analyses necessary to see, okay, are they using these things that even look the same in the same way? Um, in an ideal world, we would apply that same degree of, of data collection. A lot of digs are starting to do that. I think it will be a few years before everyone's kind of on the same page as to how to do that. Um, but yeah, really, it is just a matter of getting everybody kind of in the same room to hash out a document that we all agree on is the right way to do it. And then you know as well as I do that that's not particularly easy especially getting people into the same room that hate each other. So. <laughs> this is Jamie again. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about your research interests. How did you get into foodways, late bronze age, why archeology? span Oh, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, food's not hard because I've always food. I, I mean, I, I adore baking and making food. You know, it's always been something that I've loved. I endure. I adore growing um, my own fruits and vegetables. Uh, you know, I grew up hunting. Um, I've always found food to be very, very fascinating. And I also grew up all over the place. My dad was in the military, so I was cycling between sort of regional specializations of food for much of my life. And so that's always been something that I've just been interested in. I mean, I, I think uh, Rebecca and I have talked about this before. When I sit down and read things for fun, I actually deeply annoy my wife because I'm usually reading things about, oh, I don't know, like the fast food industry and you know, telling all sorts of horror stories about where meat comes from in America, things like that. Um, so I read about these things for fun on my own. Um, but the reality of why foodways in archaeology is actually the same thing that drew me to archaeology. I started off in history. Um, and have always been interested in history ever since I was a little kid. My, my grandfather actually, after he retired from the military, taught at the University of Pittsburgh and was always giving me probably far too advanced history books for my age. Um, and as I worked with history more and more, and especially documentary histories, I started struggling with how much was missing and what actually was interesting me about what was happening in past events. And Really, the thing that I felt that was missing was the voices, the experiences, the actions of the you know vast majority of the population that is excluded from our traditional sources. And, and you know, this is a problem that's even more acute for the ancient world than it ever would be for for the modern world, where it's still pretty bad. Um, and so, archaeology drew me in from history because I started seeing archaeology as the best possible way to get at those voices and stories. Um, these sort of entangled aspects that really make history more than the sort of, you know, going back to what I said, you know, that great man fallacy of, of so many people. And as I started looking at archaeology more and more and more, I was able to tie together my interest in, in food in the modern world with the ancient world, because at the end of the day, food-based evidence, material remains, of foodways behaviors is probably the, I mean, it's not probably, it is the most common find we find in an archaeological site, however you want to classify it. There, there is nothing more common. Um, and so just in my brain, it clicked as the most important mechanism. And it's not hard to see the relationship between food and identity or food and worldview in the modern world. It's, it's actually, I love teaching classes on food because even if my students don't do the readings, which um, you know, they frequently don't, uh, you can draw on examples from your own life pretty easily to think about why food tells us so more about a person. And so really pulling those things together was what brought me to where I am now. 
Um, as to what brought me to the late Bronze Age, um, I certainly was trying to flee from the biblical Iron Age as far as things go in the region that I work in. Um, I definitely wasn't quite ready to, to throw my hat into that ring or even particularly interested in a lot of the questions that typically motivate um, there. But what I saw in the late Bronze Age was a, a very rare opportunity to um, I had already been working in Israel for, for quite some time, and the late Bronze Age offered a really interesting opportunity to move back and forth between Egypt and the Southern Levant um, in doing a lot of work that really had the possibility of combining both what I think is, is very necessary in archaeology, which is the sort of bottom-up data collection stuff that's insanely boring and yet for some reason I find fascinating and interesting, um, that could be built from into much bigger social questions. And it was, the data was rich. And I started my PhD and was graciously granted access to a huge amount of material that really let me dive into this question head first, which I, I'm still very thankful for. So. So again, so thank you very much. I'd like to thank Liam and Jamie and Rebecca, but particularly our special guest, Jacob Dahl. He's been talking about two articles, one such chapter and one such article on aspects of identity, food practice, ceramic material in particular, from the Southern Levant. So goodbye from Siams. You've been listening to Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our next podcast will be with Professor Frank Solomon from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Radio Siams is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Thanks for listening.